I want to invite your attention to the 11th chapter of Isaiah, and I'm going to read the first six verses as our introductory reading. Isaiah 11, the first six verses. The scripture says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. That will be our reading for this morning. Before we take up an examination of this passage, we're going to approach our Father in prayer. This beautiful prophecy was fulfilled in the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus would usher in an age of peace. With the types of the Old Testament fulfilled, no longer would God's people be constituted by a physical nation that would take up swords against other nations, but rather the spiritual kingdom of Israel would carry the message of the Prince of Peace to the world. Today, the church of the Lord does not conquer its territory and claim subjects by violent force as an earthly nation does, but rather the kingdom of Christ seeks entrance into the hearts of men by the diplomacy of the gospel. Our sword is that of the spirit or the word of God, as the Apostle Paul illustrated in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Our weapons are not carnal, they're not physical, but they are spiritual and they are mighty. And our message is one of peace and entreaty to the ones who would turn their hearts unto God. That's what Jesus meant when he said in the great Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, the Beatitudes, as we refer to them, are not merely a set of happy expressions or sayings that are merely meant to be crocheted on some piece of artwork and displayed somewhere. They are great doctrinal affirmations concerning the kingdom of Christ, concerning the coming age, the age of redemption, the age of the gospel. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he's talking about this process of making peace between God and men and thus between God's people. And that peace comes by the entrance of the gospel into men's hearts. Now that's why Isaiah pictures the New Testament age here in Isaiah 11 as an age of peace and tranquility. That peace is enjoyed between God and men and thus between mutual believers when forgiveness of sins is obtained by the gospel. But the phrase Isaiah used in verse 6 to describe the kingdom of Christ is the one that I want us to focus upon for a little while today. He says, a little child shall lead them. That's a beautiful thought, and it's one that is packed with incredible meaning, and I believe it's a gem of truth that our world today desperately needs to hear. You know, God intended that we all work to train and channel the lives of our children. 
Their minds and their hearts are like pliable clay within our hands that can be shaped and molded. In fact, a parent faces a very grave responsibility when God places an innocent child in his or her arms because there lays an eternal soul that will be shaped and directed by the teaching that we instill and the example that we set. In fact, my friend, if you're a parent and you've never been faced with that reality, if you've never allowed that to settle upon you, that you now are responsible for an eternal soul. You have brought a soul into this world. And that soul is going to live forever somewhere, someplace. And where it lives forever, in large part, will be determined by the actions, the attitudes, the words, the type of training that you display before them. If you've never faced that reality, then you're woefully unprepared for the great and monumental task of parenthood. Solomon said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. And so it's our job to teach our children. But today there are a lot of lessons that our children can teach us. And I believe those lessons are some of the most fundamental principles of the Christian life. And when we think of a child, we of course think of innocence and purity. It's unfathomable to me how people can bring children into the world and not immediately love them. Jesus certainly loved children and he used them often in his ministry to teach some of the outstanding principles of his kingdom. There was the time, for example, when some people brought a group of little children to the Lord for him to lay hands on them and to pray for them. And the disciples thought of that as a rather trivial and bothersome thing and rebuked the parents who brought them. But Jesus looked at it differently. He took time for them. He said, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he went even farther to say, verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms and he put his hands upon them and blessed them according to the 10th chapter of the gospel of Mark. Well, what a wonderful picture that is. And how ridiculous does that make the Calvinist doctrine of total hereditary depravity appear? You know, I can hardly conceive of a doctrine today that teaches that babies are born in sin and depraved from their mother's womb. A lot of churches teach that. A lot of churches teach that every human being from the moment they're conceived and enter into this world, they do so in a sinful, a depraved, and a lost condition. If that be the case, why did Jesus say in Matthew 18 and 3, except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now the idea of converted or the word converted means to turn again. Jesus says that you need to turn again and become like a child in order to be saved. Well, if a child is depraved and a child is uh, lost, if a child is in a sinful state, then what sense would it make for Jesus to tell a sinful and lost and condemned man, you've got to turn again to the state of a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? Surely Jesus' statement refutes such a doctrine. How can a child lead us in righteousness if that child is sinful and depraved as John Calvin and his disciples suggest? Well, the Bible just doesn't teach such an unthinkable doctrine. 
The Bible teaches that children are our pattern in righteousness. As Isaiah said, a child shall lead them. And actually, this presents a bit of a paradox. The New Testament scriptures are written to make us perfect in Christ. And the word perfect means complete or mature. The goal of the objective of Christianity is to become a mature being. And a mature person puts away childish things, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11. But yet at the same time, the Bible teaches that we are to be like children. In other words, to grow up in Christ, we have to take on the characteristics of a child. Well, that doesn't mean childish behavior. It doesn't mean remaining in childish ignorance. But it does mean that we should have the heart and the spirit and possess the righteousness of a child if we're to ever understand and embrace the great principles of the church. So let's talk about some of those principles today. You know, first of all, a little child sets a wonderful example, a necessary example of humility. The Bible tells us in Matthew 18 and 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you had to select from all of the people of the earth, one whom you thought to be the epitome of submission and humility, wouldn't it, generally speaking, be a child? You know, a child is typically loving. A child gets delight out of pleasing others. A child is teachable, and a child is correctable. But those things can't be said for a lot of people today because man, as he grows older, becomes controlled by something called pride. He's dominated by his pride. And there is not a greater pitfall for the human race than the vice and the sin of pride. It's said that a very young Benjamin Franklin once made the statesman, not the preacher, that he once made a list of the 12 virtues that he thought would lead to success in any life. And he tried to select the cardinal principles that he thought would lead to greatness. And when he finished his article, he had an older gentleman glance over it and the man took one look and he said, Why, Ben, you've left out the most important thing of all, and that is humility. Well, he hadn't thought of that, and he grabbed it and he took his pen and he quickly, more to satisfy the old gentleman than anything, he jotted it down at the end of his list. It was an afterthought to him that day. Now, you know, unfortunately, I'm afraid that it's an afterthought to many of us. We all say that we admire someone who possesses humility, we all acknowledge that humility is a virtue. We would deny the Bible if we denied such a fact. But then we turn around and we fail to recognize pride within our own lives. A lot of us are like Benjamin Franklin. Humility becomes an afterthought. A lot of us pay lip service to humility. And in fact, let me tell you that that's one of the first virtues. In fact, it should really be the top of our list and not at the end of our list. I'm afraid that some of us get into a mentality if we're not careful, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, because in saying this, I'm not minimizing anything on the list. It's all important. But sometimes I think we get into the mentality that so long as we're members of the right church, and so long as we have the table set the right way, and so long as we sing the right way, and so long as we don't do this, and we don't do that, and we don't do the other, well, that's what's really important. And you know, when we get down to all of these Christian virtues, when we get down to all of these things like humility and controlling our tongue and our attitude and things like that, well, all of that's icing on the cake. 
All of that's, you know, those are just signs of Christian growth once we reach a particular point. We need to get all of that other down and then we can work on that through the course of time. But what I submit to you today is that humility is a foundation, not an afterthought. It's not something that we arise to or that we attain. It's the foundation of everything else. Because the Bible tells us that pride is something that God absolutely resists and rejects. And pride will hinder a man from ever really accepting and embracing the truth as God intends for him to. David prayed long ago that the sacrifices that God accepts are those of a broken and a contrite spirit. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that so long as a person goes around and is self-abasing about everything, that it doesn't matter how he lives and how he worships and so on. And that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that a man's never going to get everything else right in his life until he establishes the foundation and the premise of humility. The great Sermon on the Mount begins with humility. Matthew 5 and 3 records the beginning of the Lord's Sermon as he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And simply put, a man cannot serve God so long as he, serve, uh, so long as he serves himself. Jesus said the first requirement for any candidate for discipleship is the denial of self. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And the very nature of Christianity demands such self-abasement. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. James 4 and verse 16. Solomon once made a list of six things that God hates. Listen now, God hates these things. And he says, seven are abominations or things detestable in his sight. And the very first thing on that list, what do you suppose it was? Do you suppose that it was murder? Do you suppose the first thing that Solomon could think of when he was led by God's Spirit to say there are seven things that are abominations to God, and the first one is hands that shed innocent blood, abortion, for example. Do you suppose the first thing God hates is adultery or fornication or lying? Well, all of those things are enveloped in things that are abominations to God, most certainly. But the very first thing that Solomon says that God hates is a proud look. Solomon's pearls of wisdom, known as the Proverbs, renounce the pride of man over and over again. He says, seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Proverbs 26 and verse 12. Proverbs 16 and 18 says, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He says, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Proverbs 29 and verse 23. And on and on and on we could go. God detests pride, and Jesus says we will never enter his kingdom as long as the love and exaltation of self rules our heart. Why is that? What does it mean to be proud? And why is it so antithetical to God and to a life for him? Well, pride keeps people from looking beyond themselves. Most importantly, pride will keep a person from seeing God. And that's ultimately what pride is or what it leads a person to do. Pride is the exaltation of the creature above the creator. And when a person is filled with pride, they don't listen to what God says. They do what they want to do. They subconsciously convince themselves that they know more about it than God does. They know what's best for their life, and why should they let the Bible interfere with what they want? It takes humility, you see, to give up the things that we want to have or that we want to do in order to be what God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do. 
Pride causes a person to put his own best interest before the welfare of others. But the life of a Christian is the opposite of that. The life of the Christian is a life of sacrificing for and giving to the needs of others. Jesus, of course, set the perfect example of self-abasement for the betterment of others. The scripture tells us in that beautiful passage in the book of Philippians that Jesus, in coming to this earth, he emptied himself of all of the riches and privileges of heaven to come here and live as a man and die as a sacrifice for us. He emptied himself. That's one of the greatest theological statements ever made. The Bible says in that context, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took on the form of man, the form of a servant. He emptied himself. And when, that, when the Bible says, when Paul says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, really what he's saying there is, he thought it not robbery, though he was equal with God, to leave all of that behind and to come here and live as a man. Jesus, the object of worship and adoration. Jesus, heaven's jewel. Jesus, before whom angels bow, left all of that behind to come and be thrown amongst a sinful race of men who would hate him, who would despise him, who would ridicule him, who would spit upon him, who ultimately would put nails through his hands and feet and suspend him upon a Roman cross. He emptied himself, the Bible says, and he thus became our example. That type of humility is what must characterize any person who would be a disciple of his and who would follow him. He calls upon anyone who would follow him to give up their own lives for the sake of his kingdom. Pride is what keeps people from doing that. Pride is what keeps people from accepting the teachings of the Bible. Some folks just can't admit that they're wrong. And they'll stubbornly persist in error because they can't bring themselves to admit that what they believe, what they've done in the past, that it's sinful, it's wrong. Listen to Isaiah in the 66th chapter, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and who trembleth at my word. That's the kind of person who finds favor in God's eyes. The man or woman who can admit a mistake, who can confess they've been wrong, who respects the word of God enough to crucify their own willful pride and simply accept and follow the Bible's teachings. It was pride that caused Adam to blame Eve in the garden for their sin. It was pride that drove Cain to kill his brother Abel out of jealousy after God rejected his sacrifice. It was pride that caused Saul, the first king of Israel, to disobey God's uh, orders when God told him to go and destroy the Amalekites. It was pride that caused him to blame the people under his leadership for his own sin. It was pride that caused David to cover his sin by murdering Uriah and stealing Bathsheba. It was, the, it was pride that caused Rehoboam to divide the kingdom of Israel. It was pride that caused Peter to deny Jesus and Judas to betray him. It was pride that led the Jews to crucify him. It was pride that led Demas to forsake the Lord for the world. Friends, pride is the greatest vice entertained in the, in the soul of man, and God detests it and demands that it be cast out before he can dwell in our heart. Jesus said, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, but 
he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Matthew 23 and verse 12. Friends, a child leads us in humility and God help us to have the spirit and the heart of a child when it comes to that. Now, second of all, a little child sets a wonderful example of sincerity. I don't know how you could find a better example of genuineness than by looking at a child. Now with a child, what you see is what you get. And any of us who are parents know that all too well. In fact, a child is often so sincere and a child is so genuine and open with what he thinks that he'll embarrass you from time to time. Like the old story that you probably heard along the way of the, of the uh, parents who had invited the preacher over for lunch on Sunday. And after the service was over, the family walked by the back door where the preacher was standing and their little boy looked up at the preacher and he said, I'm sure glad you're coming to our house for dinner today. Mom's fixing chicken. And she looked and she said, well, I am not. Where did you get that idea? She said, well, I heard you tell dad I might as well have the old bird and get it over with. Well, the fact of the matter is children will sometimes be so frank and so honest that they'll embarrass you. But you know, the fact of the matter is what you see is what you get. That's just the way a child is. Now, there's no pretense with a child. We learn that trait as we get older. Few things are more genuine and sincere than a child and his or her relationship to others, but especially God. Now, it may not be the most eloquent, but you'll never hear a more worthy and heartfelt prayer than what falls from the lips of a small child. They tend to express the real contents of their little hearts. They pray for everything and they pray for everybody that they can possibly think of. You don't just hear an endless stream of cliches and guide garden directus when a child prays, he pours out his heart to God. And you know, that's the type of genuineness that God expects us to have with him in our relationship with him. The word sincere comes from two Latin words that means without wax. Now, we only use the word to talk about somebody's character or disposition, but originally it had a much broader meaning. I'm told that woodworkers and other skilled craftsmen use the term to refer to their craft. And if a carpenter used wax or something like it to cover up flaws in the wood, then that wood could no longer be referred to as sincere. If a sculptor was creating an image and he used some agent to hide or repair some mistake within his work of art, well, then again, that could not be called sincere. Well, today the word essentially means the same thing, but in a moral sense. If something, it refers to something that is without wax or something in which there is no cover up, nothing is concealed or made to look differently than what it really is. Now that's the way it is with a child, but how untrue it is with us oftentimes. You know, most adults are surrounded by a cloud of pretense, whether we want to admit it or not. I briefly touched on the idea last night that we're very careful to project a particular image of ourselves and that's all well and good if that image is the reality. But a lot of times we work very hard to project an image to those around us, perhaps our brethren in the church of something that we are, something we claim to be, when we're really not that at all. We may come to church with a pious look on our face 
We may come and so reverently sit and act as though we're oh so devout and so pious and so devoted and then our lives be something totally different as soon as we leave the church building. Adults tend to be surrounded by pretense. Well, you know, we never fool God. God sees us for what we really are. God sees the life we live every day and every moment of the day. And beyond that, God is able to peel back the veneer and look inside our heart. And he knows what we're thinking. He knows how we really feel. He knows what type of attitudes we have about things and about other people. And he judges us according to that. God expects us to be sincere in everything we do and everything we say. For example, our love for the Lord and for one another is to be, according to Romans 12 and verse 9, without dissimulation or hypocrisy. You know what that means? That means loving my brother doesn't just mean that I hug his neck at the back door of the church building once in a while and tell him, I love you, brother. It goes much farther than that. Loving my brother means I behave like I love my brother. I conduct myself in a way that shows I love my brother. I genuinely love my brother to the point that I would do anything for him and lay my life down for him, sacrifice for him. I love my brother. I have a genuine concern for him and for his soul, and I act out of that motive. That's what love is. Love is action, not just words. And Paul says our love is to be sincere. We're not just supposed to say we love God. You can tell God you love him all day long. God wants you to show that you love him. God wants to see a life that's lived for him. Joshua told the children of Israel long ago to choose once and for all whom they would serve, either the idol gods of their past or the God Jehovah. And he told them to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth, according to Joshua 24 and verse 14. In other words, stop paying lip service to God and give him your heart. But that's exactly what they had been doing. They'd been paying lip service to the God of heaven. They were fickle. They were so easily distracted. They were even given to idolatry. And Joshua says, listen, it is time now to be what you claim to be. It is time to either step up and be what you claim to be or give it up altogether. Serve the Lord, he says, in sincerity and in truth. God demands the same thing of us today. That was why Jesus so detested the religion of the Pharisees. It was not. And don't let anybody ever tell you or bully you into believing that Jesus condemned the Pharisees because of their claim to adhere to the law of God. That was not the Lord's complaint. The Lord never encouraged anybody to disobey or violate the law of God. Jesus kept the law of God. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was they were living under this pretense that they were keeping the law of God and urging others to do so when they really weren't keeping the law of God. They were keeping the traditions of their elders. They were keeping the traditions that had evolved in modern times. And they were imposing those upon others as they were the law of God. And Jesus, he could look upon these men's hearts, saw people who tried to project themselves as being pious, devoted, and close to God, but yet he saw that their hearts were rotten. He saw that they were not sincere. They loved the attention. They loved all of the trappings that went along with religion and their position within the religious system of that day, but their hearts were not devoted to God. They didn't really love God. And they really didn't love the law of God. They were ignorant of the law of God. 
They were hypocrites. And Jesus had no greater enemies. Jesus detested that more than he had detested anything else. And he detests it today when he sees it in religious people's lives. You see people today who try to put on a good face when it comes to religion. They show up to church maybe on Easter Sunday or when it's convenient. They make an appearance once in a while. They dress, dress up in their best. They put on a big show for others to see how much they love the Lord. Question is, where are they the rest of the time? What are they doing the rest of the year? That kind of shallow and worldly religion doesn't impress the Lord. It turns his stomach. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. He's not talking about moral purity there. He's talking about sincerity and genuineness. And only the person with a heart that wants God and his truth above everything else is eligible for the kingdom of heaven. And our children lead us into the kingdom of heaven by their example of sincerity. Thirdly, a child can lead us in the paths of forgiveness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 20, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children. Listen to that again. Be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children. That's Paul's way of telling us that we need to imitate the spirit of a small child in dealing with one another. Now just observe. Notice how forgiving and long-suffering a child is. Kids don't normally hold grudges. And if they do, it won't last very long. Children can be playing somewhere and they get into a fight of some sort. And they may argue and they may call one another names. They may get mad and they may... Uh, wrestle one another, they may stomp away, they may stop speaking to one another for a little while, but it usually doesn't take more than a few hours or days at best. Usually it's just a few minutes and the whole thing is blown over and things are back like they used to be. There are times when we parents have to discipline our kids. That's not a pleasant thing. Your child may resent the spanking they get or the scolding they receive, the punishment that you mete out. That's natural for them to do so. But you know good and well it doesn't take very long and it's all over and they're all smiles again. And they want you to know that everything is right. Now contrast that with the average person in the church. You just see how far that goes in the church today. You let some older person be rebuked for some wrongdoing. You let someone be wronged in some way by somebody, have their feelings hurt by someone over something, and they'll hold a grudge sometimes for years. I know people that'll all of a sudden stop speaking to people in the church because somebody said something or somebody looked at them the wrong way, and they'll go for months and hardly utter a word to somebody in the congregation, and you don't even know what it's all about. You don't even know what you did to upset them or offend them. Listen, I don't care how goody two-shoes you are and how righteous you think you are. If that's your attitude and your conduct toward other people, you don't have the heart of a child. And you don't have the kind of heart that God expects of you as his follower. Sometimes people harbor resentment and malice for the rest of their lives. I've seen that over and over again. Some people, when they're rebuked, all, all they can think to do is pull out their microscope and go looking for the faults of everyone else to turn the attention away from them. Well, that's where a child sets a wonderful and much-needed example. Jesus not only forgave, he taught us to forgive also. 
In fact, he went so far as to say in Matthew 6 and verse 14, For if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let me tell you something, folks, that's serious. And Jesus meant that every bit as much as he meant, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus said, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, you can forget about being forgiven by your Father in heaven. That's deadly serious. If we fail to forgive, we won't be forgiven. Heaven has a mercy bank, and how much we withdraw depends on how much we deposited. And by the way, forgiveness isn't just saying that we forgive someone and then talk about it to everyone we meet or holding their past offense over their head for years to come or treating them like a second-class citizen of the kingdom of heaven for the rest of their life. Forgiveness is instant and it is complete or it is not forgiveness. And if you want to see what kind of heart God wants us to have in that regard toward others, watch how children forgive. And lastly, a child leads the righteous in a confiding faith and trust. You know, our children teach us some very important lessons in faith. Kids don't really worry much. They don't worry much because they leave the things that bring worry to us, their parents. Children don't typically worry about where their next meal is coming from. Kids don't typically worry about whether they'll have something to wear tomorrow. Small children don't worry about having a place to sleep. They're not worried about making the mortgage payment. They understand that mom and dad are going to make that payment. And they don't understand sometimes when money runs tight, the budget is thin. They don't understand when someone loses a job or when some other catastrophe comes along. They just have faith in mom and dad that their needs are going to be met. And in fact, they think that mom and dad are an endless supply of resources. You go to the store and walk them through the toy aisle if you dare do so. And they want everything that they see and that they desire. And they don't understand the fact that you, first of all, don't have the money to pay for that expensive toy and that you don't need it on top of that. They think that money grows on trees. They think that you've got all the money in the world. They think that mom and dad can do anything. And you know, Jesus said that that's the way we should be. Jesus told his disciples to take note of the limits of the field and how God takes care of them. He then reminded them, doesn't God care even more about you? Well, that's the kind of faith we need to have in our Heavenly Father. A child thinks his or her daddy has the strength and the power to do anything. They think their mother can heal all of their hurts. When they fall off the swing or they fall out of the treehouse or they fall off their bike and they scrape their knee and blood is running everywhere, they don't come running in the house and say, call 911. They run in the house and say, where's mama? Because they know if they can get to mama, that she'll patch it all up. She'll make it right. All will be well. Well, do you know God wants to be that kind of parent to us? Paul said, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 and verse 16. Do you have that type of confidence in God? Do you have that kind of faith in him? Do you trust him in all of life's circumstances? Do you trust his word enough to humbly obey it regardless of what it costs or where it leads you to follow? Do you have supreme confidence in the promises of God that he'll do what he said he would do so that you completely yield your life and you're all to him? No wonder Jesus said, 
of such is the kingdom of heaven. You know, children often try to be like their parents. They try to talk like them. They try to walk like them. They go raid the closet and try to dress like them. And in many ways, they imitate us. But the question for us today is, are we trying to be like our child? And that reminds me of two prayers that were prayed once upon a time. A child had gotten into some sort of mischief and the father had to punish the child. And he said, last night my little boy confessed to me some childish wrong. And kneeling at my knee, he prayed with tears. Dear God, make me a man like daddy, wise and strong. Then while he slept, I knelt beside his bed, confessed my sins, and prayed with low bowed head. Oh God, make me a child like my child here, pure, guileless, trusting thee with faith sincere. And while your little boy or your little girl is trying to be just like you, may God help you to be just like him or her in the heavenly qualities that God gave your child. Can you imagine what a wonderful thing the kingdom of God would be at every place that it's planted if we had the heart of children? It's what Isaiah said long ago. This wonderful age where the gospel would be, bring peace between men and peace between God and men would be an age where even a little child would leave them. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m., and 5 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.